Have you ever thought about that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? I did. I actually bought two homes in Albuquerque that I Airbnb'd, and it was just an amazing investment, honestly, because, you know, as you are accruing value in your property, you are also making money on the Airbnbs. It's amazing. So your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 21 Seeds Infused Tequila is a must-have. It's an award-winning tequila. It's infused with real juice, with real fruit, which means the flavors are built in. It's real. So you need like two or three ingredients to make your perfect cocktail. Hey, um, you know how I'm always trying to keep my house parties exciting? New cocktails? <laughs> do you? Yeah. Okay, well, here's something that's going to flip the script. Okay. All right. 21 Seeds Infused Tequila. Yeah. yeah. Tell me more about this, right. Oliver Hudson. Yeah, 21 Seeds is an award-winning tequila that's infused with juice from real fruits. You only need two to three ingredients to make the perfect cocktail. Wait a minute. I think I know what brand you're talking about. You know why? Yeah. Because 21 Seeds is founded by two sisters and their friend. It's female founded. That's right. See? Sounds See like how I know? Something I can get behind. I know. Well, there's a good story behind that for sure. Listen, if you love tequila... You have to try 21 Seeds Infused Tequila. Enjoy responsibly. 21 Seeds Diageo, New York, New York. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Kate Hudson. And my name is Oliver Hudson. We wanted to do something that highlighted our relationship. And what it's like to be siblings. We are a sibling rivalry. No. No, sibling rivalry. Don't do that with your mouth. <laughs> sibling rivalry. That's good. So this week we have our final episode of the season with Mark Epstein, who you may remember from an earlier episode. We loved him. So much we wanted to have him back on. He is a psychiatrist who looks at the ways in which Buddhism can enrich Western approaches to psychology. He's just the absolute best. His latest book is called The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. You're going to like it. Just listen. He's our first repeat offender, isn't I know. He? I love it. Uh, Hi. Hi there. Hey. Oh my gosh, so nice to see you again. Nice to see you both. You're very kind to have me again. Of course. Of course, we were just saying you're our first repeat offender. I caught that. I caught that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to be. Well, it's yeah. so nice to have you back. And I'm excited because you have a new book coming out and we get to talk yeah. a bit about this. And it, it, it does it does bring back a lot of what we talked about the last time, which is your the intersection of your therapy and the sort of science behind psychotherapy and meditation. So the the intersection yes, of, yes. of Buddhism. Buddhism. 
and and traditional psychology. Yeah, this is something yeah. that it need, it's it's needs it almost needs to happen. I mean, it, it just seems. Well, to it go needed to hand. happen. It needed for me. It needed to happen because uh, uh, the Buddhist the Buddhist thing came to me first. So so I was like, oh, this is this is answering a lot of questions for me, and I and I really you know, embraced it, uh, to as, as much as I could, and then had to figure out something to do with my life. So decided that being a therapist was, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, uh, most, uh, attractive option, I think. Um, so then, then I felt, it, oh, it's sort of incumbent upon me. You know, I can't abandon the Buddhist thing, but I have to really be a therapist. So can I, can, it seemed like they should be able to work together, uh, but I didn't have that much. I had Ramdas, you know. Uh, I had a few, a few guiding lights, but um, uh, they don't really train you that well to be a therapist. They just because I did it through the medical route, where you'd like do the courses and then suddenly you know, they put you in a room with a patient, you know, mm-hmm. and okay, you're the doctor now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, so I had, so I could sort of make it up as I went along or learn by doing would be another way, a less facetious way of saying it. Maybe we'll get into the Buddhism aspect of it all, but just therapy in general, because we have yeah. both been in it for a thousand years. This popped into my head, you know, to be a good therapist, just in yeah. general, does it take a certain attribute, a certain sort of per, not personal experience necessarily, but is it empathy? You know, is it listening? Like, is there a certain sort of component to being a really good therapist. Mm-hmm. I know what I, I have a I, feeling I know what Mark's going to say. Okay, go. Okay, well, <laughs> I think it's curiosity. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's curiosity. Um like I, in in my book I quote a friend of mine, a, a therapist friend of mine as saying that uh, a therapist is uh, uh one part gossip and one part voyeur. Uh, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> so I think it's the, it's though it's curiosity really and a willingness to put yourself aside. Um, in a certain way, like the vacation from therapy, like you don't have to think about yourself. Being a therapist, you have to use what comes up in your own mind while you're listening, but really it's such a relief from yourself mm-hmm. because you're immersed in what's going on with the other person. Yeah, being so, and present. I think maybe I think maybe empathy comes out of those qualities, you know, the curiosity and the willingness to put yourself to one side. Um but I think, you know, or friendship, like is how is therapy maybe just another kind of friendship? I sometimes wonder. So the, that need in the, uh, in, you know, in the therapist for the friendship or the intimacy, I think is also a motivating. Mm. Yeah, because it's the most intimate relationship, isn't it? Like I find that, you know, my, my relationship to the therapists that I've had, which aren't that many, I've had really two. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. And... I mean, it's the most intimate. They know everything, you know. I and it's not the most intimate, hopefully, but well, but well, it's no, all no. It's, it's, <laughs> that's against the rules, yeah. I think. That's not right. that kind of intimacy, but like the <laughs> right. most uh, emotionally kind yeah. of. Um, well, honest. I think it's that's what it's striving for is honesty, right? Um, mm-hmm. 
Cause, cause so much of, so much of being in therapy is saying the things that you're ashamed of or embarrassed about, or, you, you know, uh, 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 that you don't even know, like letting oh my yourself God. say oh, the things Mark, you don't even how know. Mark, how many times have you been in a session where you're like, I just, they're just lying to me all the time. Uh, have you ever uh, had to like uh, oh, actually yeah. Yeah, put only, your foot down? That, that really only ha- has happened to me when people are uh, doing heroin or or drinking uh, surreptitiously and not telling anyone in their lives about it, in- including me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have had that happen, and it comes out much later. Oh yeah, well, well, wow. I, I, I I'm not saying that <clears throat> I've lied to my therapist necessarily. You've withheld. Oh, withheld my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> Everybody not, withholds. No, I'm not even kidding. Like you know, and this is all public knowledge, but like I was. I went through a period of infidelity with my now wife, who was my fiance at the time for two years. And I was spiraling. I mean, I was drinking, I was partying, I was with other women, I was out of my mind. And I didn't get caught. I told her because I couldn't live with myself and it's a whole other story. We got into therapy with with my therapist and he was like, I didn't know any of this shit. Like I I didn't tell him one thing, nothing. He didn't know anything. And he's like, oh, okay. Uh, And meanwhile, for two and a half years, I was going every week like, hey, man, like things are good. You know, Mm -hmm. life is pretty good. Working and engaged. Yeah. And and I was just in a downward spiral. Shame. Addiction type of. Yeah. Well, I had a little lower case. Well, I don't think it's only like when you when you try to force your adolescent children into therapy and they're not ready. I think that that's a very common thing where the where they go to, they go to the therapist, but they don't really talk about what's well. Ollie what's was twenty nine, so well, this was twenty. <laughs> that's pretty young stuff. <laughs> I, I, was, I was. I was. That's not even. You were close. I was maybe 27, 26, 27. Uh, but I just then, then came then came the release, then came the anxiety, then came the panic attacks, right. and we're still still dealing with dealing. It. <laughs> there was just a lot of shame. Like I it was, I was so ashamed that I couldn't even tell my own therapist. Therapist. Yeah. Can you be a narcissist and a therapist? Oh, good question, Holly. Oh, I think there are very there are many of them. Yeah. I think I think you can be you you can be messed up in all kinds of ways and still be a decent therapist if you if you adhere to the restrictions that being a therapist requires. You, you know, uh, but get when you like coming up around therapists, being trained around therapists and seeing who these people really are in their like in their regular lives, it's uh, it's it's pretty disturbing. <clears throat> and we talked about this before because you were on before, yeah. but we have so many new listeners. Um, <laughs> let's let's get into your Buddhism just for a yes. second, just to gain some context. Okay. You know, like how did this how did this happen? Where did you discover it? What it did for you? Um, I, I I discovered Buddhism uh, in my uh, freshman year in college by taking an introduction to world religion class that I wasn't planning on taking, but I, I met a, uh, uh, a young woman, also a freshman in the first week of school who was taking the class. So I followed her into the class mm-hmm. and um, it satisfied a requirement. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the whole first semester was Eastern religion and the whole second semester was Western religion. And the Eastern religion was Buddhism and Taoism and Hinduism. And we just read the the um, uh, the texts, you know, for Taoism, we read the Tao Te Ching and for Buddhism, we read the Dhammapada and for Hinduism, we read the Bhagavad Gita or something. And the 
the Buddha stuff just like lit me up. Like, like, oh, I, I, I remember one of the first um, poems was like the, the untrained mind, the anxious mind is like a fish flapping on dry ground, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, oh, that's what my mind is like, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so, and then there was just like one thing after another in college um, there was a lot of Buddhism floating around the periphery. And uh, I met, I took a psychology class and the person who was the graduate student who was teaching it was a guy named Daniel Goleman, who uh, went on to be the, the um, psychology writer for the New York Times, and he wrote Emotional Intelligence. But in those days, he was just back from India. He'd been with Ramdas already. He knew about Buddhism. And uh, he sort of took me under his wing and said, if you want to learn more about this, my friends are all teaching uh, out at, in Boulder, Colorado this summer. You should go out there. It's a long story. I'm sorry. I love it. Uh, but, um, but I listened to him. I went out to uh, this place called Naropa Institute, which was in Boulder, 1974. I was 20 years old. And it was like a Buddhist Woodstock sort of thing. Like, uh, like uh, all of California was there and a lot of the New York art world was there. And I was like this young, you know, wide-eyed uh, um, uh, person. And uh, uh, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Ramdas and Gregory Amazing. Bateson and cool. Allen yeah. Ginsberg. And, I remember this story. I mean, yeah. It's all now. I'm like, I mean, oh, was yeah. this a drug-induced thing as well? I think you asked the same question it, the last well, time. Uh, well, a lot of the, I mean, <laughs> a lot of the people who were there were uh, were pulled in because of their psychedelic experiences. Mm -hmm. you, you know. Um, and then, and, and, uh, one half of it was Ram Dass with all who had been Richard Alpert, who had been Timothy Leary's associate, who had been kicked out of Harvard before I got there. Uh, so there was a whole psychedelic, you know, um, leftover kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and then a Tibetan Buddhist Lama, you know, teaching, um, but it was an attempt to channel the psychedelic uh, experiences in a more, you know, uh, to find the spiritual element and to uh, begin to integrate uh, that into mm -hmm. a, a Western life, you know. Mm -hmm. So that 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 grabbed me, and I gravitated towards the uh, mindfulness teachers. Uh, and started uh, doing silent retreats, two-week silent retreats. I uh, did a series of them. Uh, uh, and that, that's what showed me that, oh, meditation, it's not, some, it's, it's not just what I've read about. It's actually a real experience. And uh, doing it in, with some kind of intensity, you know, in silence for two weeks, trying to be mindful moment to moment of whatever's happening, uh, it, it's, oh, this is a real thing. Like my, like my mind can actually do this. Mm. And, um, uh, did you find that to be completely transformative? Like your silent, the silent retreats it, or was it, it wasn't complete? No, it, it's like, it doesn't make you a different person, but it, it, it got me out of my head. Basically I was very much, you know, like worrying, anxious thinking I was, you know, a smart, I like to read, et cetera, but I was very much located in my thinking mind and the meditation pulled me, you, you know, it showed me that that was just uh, one aspect of who I was, that it wasn't the complete thing and that there was more on a feeling level, on a heart level. Uh, and, and that even my mind was more than just my thoughts, that my mind was actually this kind of expanse that, uh, 
um, was full of stuff I didn't know about. So how long that, did it take you was to liberating. How long did it take you to have that sort of breakthrough? You know, it took about three days in a silent <clears throat> retreat. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the first three days, I was struggling always with can I do this? And this is so boring. And I'm no good at this. And it's this is just, you know. Uh, and then, but but I'm I'm sort of disciplined in how I have approached uh, you know a lot of things in my life. So I just plugged away at it, mm. and at a certain point my mind calmed down. Do you remember like, oh, the moment? I remember the moment. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. it can happen like that. And it's just uh, a uh, moment. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, I remember the moment. And, and it was quite profound for me, really. Uh, and I, was, I became kind of filled with uh, very intense loving feelings that I didn't know I was capable of. Um, and I spent a lot of time in further retreats chasing that feeling, mm. you know, trying to recreate it, which, the medit- which yeah. people do. The yeah. silent meditation drug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that's a, a characteristic or something. I, I wonder. I, I think it's a real tendency that people chase the, uh, you know, that the, the first taste of something is really profound and, the, and, uh, and then whatever the addictive thing is in, in somebody, it's like, oh, I need, I need more of it. I want you to repeat. But yeah, to well, be I mean, able I- just to... I think that's why you find a lot of addicts, you know, who then move into religion or spirituality and there's an addictive quality to it, you know, yeah, they almost go too far. I, I see that a lot yeah. for sure. Yeah. I, I had one very good, I was at a, a silent retreat of maybe five or six years ago and, and, uh, and I was still kind of subliminally chasing that, uh, that feeling like, Oh, I know what can happen. Where is it? And, um, whoever was doing the teaching, doing the interviews, he was, he was very, he, I knew that he knew what I was after. And he said, um, uh, don't chase her, Mark, let her find you. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he gendered it like that. Mm-hmm. And I, and when he, and, and the fact that he gendered it like that mm. was like, I knew, I knew he knew, <laughs> that, you know, there was something, you know, like the erotic aspect yeah. of, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and let her find you. It was like, oh yeah, that's the right. Meditation. Yeah. Oh, I like so that. great. Yeah. I yeah. I really that. helped me. Ooh, aura. So I got my aura. It's sleek. It's super cool. My kids loved it. My wife loved it. So what the aura is, it's a frame and it brings all of your photos and videos together in one high resolution display where you can really enjoy them. So preload any frame with any memory, meaningful memories, silly memories, a special message, and it will appear as soon as you set it up. So, you know, if grandma is a thousand miles away, everyone is connected to this frame. So you can then add pictures and add messages and add videos and, and stay crazy connected. You can add unlimited photos and videos. You can invite as many people as you want to a frame. There's no hidden fees or subscriptions. It has the interactive touch bar. So change photos, view details, like photos, and more with a simple tap or a swipe on the edge of the frame and keep your display smudge free. So, you know, it's not like an iPad where you get all your fingerprints everywhere. It's so clever. I absolutely love it. 
It was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter. It was selected as one of Oprah's favorite things three years running. So it's guaranteed to make mama smile. I have to say, if you're thinking of Mother's Day gifts, this would be an absolutely perfect one. So from now until Mother's Day, listeners can save on the perfect gift and get up to $40 off while supplies last, which is important because supplies don't always last, by visiting auraframes.com slash sibling. That's A-U-R-A frames.com slash sibling. Terms and conditions apply. Outer Known. I've been wearing Outer Known long before it was cool. I want to brag about that. They're comfortable and they fit amazing. It's completely my style, by the way. Just packed for Mexico. I'm leaving for Mexico, actually. I brought all my Outer Known shirts. Oh, you know what I was I was wearing in I went to I went to England for spring break and I brought my incredibly cozy yellow zipped it has like a, a zip uh sweater and I wore it the entire time. It was so cozy, it was so cute. This the stuff's amazing. Uh the men's is yummy. I mean it's like Anything that any guy really wants to wear has something for everyone. And the ladies have some amazing stuff. The jumpsuits are amazing. Um, my sister-in-law wears her Outer Known jumpsuits all the time. So Outer Known was the first brand founded on a total commitment to sustainability. And everything they do, that's their focus. So go to OuterKnown.com today and enter the code SIBLING at checkout. And you'll get 25% off your full price order. That's OuterKnown.com. O-U-T-E-R-K-N-O-W-N.com. And remember to use the code SIBLING at checkout for 25% off. Check them out today if you want to look like me. Adderknown.com. And don't forget promo code SIBLING for 25% off. The title of your book is uncovering, I mean, it's Zen, Zen of the Zen of therapy, but then uncovering a hidden kindness in life. Yeah. And I just want to kind of pinpoint, you know, where the kindness aspect comes in. Like, what is that? Why is that such a poignant word in the title? Um, and how does that relate to the therapy and the Buddhism together? Um. Because therapy is an interpersonal uh, event, you know, it's a rela- it's a relationship, it's a relational thing. Um, I have started to think about it as a as a two person meditation. You know, like usually you think about meditation, you go inside yourself and you're all alone in your solitude, et cetera. But why not deploy the same kind of attentional uh, rigor or qualities in in, uh, in 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 an interpersonal thing? So. Uh, because it's a relationship or kind of a you know spiritual friendship, I sometimes think about it as also that when the uh, the ruminations or the anxiety or the the over elaborated thinking mind starts to fall away, you know when the conceptual mind loosens its grip or when the ego gives up its attempts to control you know those are all different ways of saying the same thing i feel i can relate to all of them <laughs> yeah me too what, uh, what is it that is allowed to emerge you know when that when when the 
the restraint of all of that is quieted. And, uh, and so it's some kind of heart thing, like, you know, uh, like kindness that starts to come out. So the, the intimacy that is possible in therapy that really is maybe just friendship um, or a kind of caring one for the other uh, or a sense of being um, uh, appreciated or acknowledged or known, you know, that all just feels like kindness to me. And the, the, um, the Buddhist thing, uh, the Buddhist psychology says that that capacity is latent in all of us, that that's really like our natural state and that our, our egos get in the way and, we, you know, uh, our, our need to control what can't be controlled to get preoccupies us and then our fear steps in and then we're locked into our own, you know, small minds. But that the Buddha nature, to, you, you know, is this kind of kindness that realizes that we're all kind of in the same predicament um, and that we need each other. Mm-hmm. That's so, great. It's so interesting, though, because everyone seeks the Buddha nature in one way or another, whether you call right. Buddha, G, God, whatever it is. <clears throat> but essentially, we wouldn't even exist. Mankind wouldn't exist without ego and power struggle and war and all of these things. I mean, would it, though? You're just making that assumption. Well, I'm assuming, because imagine if we all were of Buddha nature. Then we, we, yeah, we might be living fucking the best. Well, We'd no, be we wouldn't have. In a Buddhaverse. We would yeah, in a Buddhaverse. Buddha-verse. Oh, I like that. Did, did you okay. just make that Did you up? just make that up? No, that's from Thurman. That's, okay, that's from Robert okay. Thurman. He made it up. Okay, but, but, I'm, but, but I'm serious. Like, you know. We no, mankind to- wouldn't exist without mothers. Right. Mankind wouldn't exist without mothers. That's the and so the, the well and the, and and semen, <laughs> you mean uh, semen. Yeah, yeah, semen they could get from anywhere, but it's the mothers who the mothers <laughs> yeah, are really we doing. Can gra- it. We can we can grab Just that. Scoop anywhere. up some semen can, down by the river. Can, yes, <laughs> it's coming. That's coming soon. <laughs> So the the maternal aptitude, the ability, you know, the the ability that's intrinsic in a mother that doesn't destroy her baby when she may, when the baby makes her so pissed off and frustrated, that capacity of a mother is related to the latent Buddha nature. That's 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 what the Dalai Lama always uses as an illustration, and they even have the have meditations where you imagine that uh, all beings have been your mother, or you've been mother to all beings, so that you can cultivate instead of the war and the and you know. So how does how does a session work? Meaning, how do you integrate both Buddhism, meditation, and sort of traditional psychology? Well, that's what I was trying to show in the book. Uh, um, People are always asking me, you know, like, how do you bring Buddhism into the therapy? How do you teach your patients to meditate and so on? So, and and I'm always giving like various equivocal answers to that um, because for a long time, I sort of kept the Buddhism part more hidden and um, I didn't want to proselytize or lay it on people, but people were actually interested. So then I had to you know, be a little bit more out front with it. But what, so what I did in the book was to try to capture uh, one session just as it, as it went uh, moment to moment per week for a year to show how therapy, it's really just someone comes in with their life and they try to talk about it. And I listen and try to respond in a way that is uh, helpful or, or truthful and we just talk about the mundane reality of somebody's struggle, you know, and 
So how does the Buddhist, the Buddhist thing sneaks in, I think, uh, in a couple of different ways. Uh, if it's alive in any way in me, then somehow the way that I'm listening or the way that I'm talking, the way that I'm responding, it has to be coming through. So, so without trying to define that too much, I just tried to show it. And so maybe it's in my humor or maybe it's in my curiosity or maybe it's, it's uh, in what I decide to focus on, which um, is usually where the, the, uh, the patient or the client is clinging in some way to some notion of what's wrong with them or with their spouse or with their child or with their life. And, and um, uh, whatever they've come up with is usually not the whole picture. So if I can uh, unstick them in some way from whatever the fixed notion is of what's wrong, then I think that's me being a good therapist, but also using some kind of Buddhist something to create, to, to open the, you know, open the field, open the mind a little bit when uh, you, so that some new possibility could come through. When you say clinging, that word really resonates with me because of all the things that people say, right, it's like <clears throat> sort of it manifests in itself, like so the, the repetitive things that I hear people say about me, right? If I'm trying to be like, oh, what's my part in this? And what are the things that I hear a lot? Because I, I listen to them. I know what they are. They, I, they're, you know, and it always comes out like tough or, you know, um, impatient, right? Or thing. But clinging is actually really what I do. I actually have a tendency to cling to, to things that matter or things that I... I need or desire. It's like I never want to let go of them. It's mm-hmm. hard for me well, to let go. We're all like that. Right. We're all like that. And so I, I, I wonder, you know, what is the thing, just maybe in general as a therapist, maybe, and, or as a Buddhist or both, as both, is the reason why that's such a common concept that we all cling to these ideas or we cling to our expectations or we, you know, we can't let go, that we hold so desperately is that like a brain function is it a i think it's a psychological function i think it's in a, it's in a, an emotional instinct almost and and i th- i think the reason that meditation uh exists uh, or or the reason that it, that it can be so engaging for people is that what it's really showing you in the recesses of your own mind is always how you cling you know, like what you cling to and how you cling. That's what, when you're sitting and trying to watch your breath or trying to watch your mind, what you see is that, you, you know, like, and, and so because it becomes so obvious, you, you know, like really, oh, I'm having the same thought a hundred times in half an hour about what, you know, what I'm trying to hold on to or the way somebody hurt my feelings or what I'm hoping is going to happen tomorrow. You know, that's all a kind of clinging. And you get hip to that in meditation so that after the 20th time of it coming up, you start to pull away from the, um, uh, uh, what's the word, from the, like the valence of it, from the intensity of it, you know, and you start to see it just as, oh, it's really, there's that thought again. There's that, there's that feeling again. So you loosen your investment in the clinging 
uh, um, you loosen, I think the psychoanalytic word would be the, the cathexis to it, but you know, we don't have to use that word, but you loosen the attachment to the clinging, you know, it doesn't totally go away. I don't think. I feel like you cling to things that are familiar, even if they're negative, meaning sometimes people just exist mm -hmm. better in the chaos, even though they want out of it, they can't seem to get out of it because it's what they're familiar with. There's almost a mm -hmm. safety in, in the negative. Oh, you're totally right about that. You're, I, I think I, I was, I read all this Zen literature because I ended up titling the book, the Zen mm -hmm. of therapy. So, mm -hmm. so I, I needed some Zen, in it, you know? <laughs> uh, but I, but I found this, this beautiful book called what to, called mm. uh, bring me the rhinoceros and other zen koans that will save your life but yeah john, john tarrant um i got a lot from that book but he says one thing in there that's like what you're saying that if if you're if you're used to living in a small room you, you know and someone someone shows you like a big field you might get afraid and you might prefer to stay in the small room, you know, even if the happiness that you're seeking lies in the large field, mm -hmm. you know, that that happiness might not look like what we imagine it to be. And, and we're all attached. We all cling to the little worlds that we've created for ourselves in our own minds about who we are and who you are and who our family is, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we're imprisoned by that, really. Yeah. I know. I always, I, 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 this sounds totally crazy, but I, I, I watch Al Center's International, like my favorite <laughs> show. And a lot of the time when you're watching this show, it's like these couples that are like, I was working in this job in Chicago and I, you know, whatever, I, I lost my dad and I just was like, what am I doing? I don't want to be an accountant. I want to live in Portugal. Mm. And so we're doing it. We're going to move the whole family to Portugal. I want to watch this And you're show. like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and every time I watch it, I'm like, I want to move to Portugal. I'm, I'm to like, Portugal. I want to <laughs> I want to leave everything behind. That was, it's so liberating, you know, to just be like, you know what? We're leaving. We're moving. We're going to try something new. It, that, You're you going know. to know so many people in Portugal. We, we, like every, That's true. Every other I person do. is moving to Portugal. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I would, you know, I, I, the truth is everywhere I would go other than like, you know, I yeah. probably know somebody. Wherever but, you go, um, there you are. That's the I know. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Uh, but um, this idea of attachments as well, you use that word. That's a very like common therapeutic yeah. word. Like what is your attachment style? And how does that come up and what? how does your family of origin relate to your attachment style? Like Oliver and I are both definitely anxious attachments, don't mm -hmm. you think? Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so it manifested in us actually yeah, our Lexapro, attachments. Because I, I, I had so much anxious, <laughs> anxious attachment. <laughs> Where, whereas, um, you know, sometimes with people can have totally different attachment styles, like avoidant, even in the yeah. same family, do you ever work with attachment styles? Is that something that you find? Oh, oh I think I think I'm always working with attachment styles, Mo mostly mostly anxious ones, because um, that's <laughs> what I know best. But, <laughs> but um, I think a lot a lot of what I've done with the Buddhist psychology, with trying to integrate it with the with the Western stuff. Uh, is really coming from that place of talking. I don't use the attachment uh, theory language that much, but um, 
the big influence on my work is this British uh, uh, child psychiatrist named Donald Winnicott. And uh, he's the one who popularized the phrase, the, the good enough mother. Um, and he was like a pediatrician who became a child psychiatrist in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s. And um, he, he, he wrote beautifully and endlessly about the, the anxiety that comes for the child whose parents are either too intrusive or too abandoning. And, and, you know, for a child who's not physically or, but he was talking also emotionally held in a good enough manner so that they learn Mm. that their own emotional life doesn't have to be scary. That, that, that being held in that way allows you to learn how to hold your own emotions in a way that does, that doesn't freak you out. But I love this concept, though. I love it because it's good enough, meaning if you're too much like this and you're too intrusive, you fuck them up. And if you're too abandoning intru- them, that's you're right. fucking up. So that's it's like right. just good enough. You got to let them right. figure shit out. So so I always, I always heard that as like another way of talking about the middle way. Like in Buddhism, it's always the middle way. And in meditation, that you're trying to do something similar with your mind, not be too intrusive, you know, and judging it all, not be too abandoning and just fall asleep. And, and so I think what you're really doing, this is my main theory, that what you're really doing both in meditation and in therapy is creating a holding environment, you know, for oneself, uh, such that you can learn what you didn't learn in your anxious attachment time when you were growing up. You know, it's like another chance to learn how to become partners with the capacities that constitute you, you know? It's really interesting because I feel like, I feel like if there's one thing, like we have very different parenting styles, but I think our emotional holding with our kids is very similar. Like we're not over intrusive Mm -hmm. and we're not, like we're not over coddly mm-hmm. and over like I need to be a part of everything and talk to me and I'm here for I'm, I'm every like you know, and we're also not neglectful at all mm-hmm. in terms of like emo- emotionally, but then there's the physical part of it, you know, of you know always there, not always there. Like what's that yeah. balance? But I feel like I feel like based on you know at least from what I witness, like I feel like we actually have been able to do that part really well. Yeah, well, I think we've been mindful of how we were changing, brought up right. and yeah. then, you know, changing the railing narrative. against it. Okay, change, exactly, changing yeah. the narrative. I think that's been true for a lot of us. Course, course light. Look, we always got to be on all the time, all right? We're on, we're on, we're on with our kids every now and then. In life, it's important to just stop and reset, okay? And that's when I actually boop, 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 open the refrigerator and reach for my Coors Light. When I was drinking my beer, that's exactly what I thought about. I was thinking about, oh, wow, this is my reset. I'm actually, they're right. It's a reset button. We just pushed it, cracked this baby open, and it was like a really beautiful moment. There's nothing like cracking open a really cold, cold, yummy beer. It's literally made to chill. I mean, the mounds on the bottles and cans, they turn blue when the beer is cold. You know, this is becoming their signature. You always know when it is cold. Get Coors Light 
delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart by going to CoorsLight.com slash Hudson. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Noom Mood. So Noom Mood is here to guide you to mental wellness. So they've created an app that gives you the tools that you need to tackle stress. And so you really feel like you can uh, learn some some new ways to sort of, you know, em- empower yourself and 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 take on the the stressors that we all feel day to day. I love that it's backed by science. Um, these are all lessons that are based on psychological principles. They teach you about your relationship with stress and anxiety. It's you know, and, and they, they, they sort of hold your hand through the process. There's daily curriculum, and that's coupled with a one-on-one coach that, that guides you and encourages you. I personally think that it's very hard to do those things without a little support, um, without really understanding what the things are that not only work for you, but we know are scientifically proven to work. So New Mood uses their guided approach. And it teaches you really the power of how Amazing it is when you can shift your mindset. And it's not something that you need to spend hours a day doing. This is something that with just a couple minutes a day, you can start to transform. Yeah, I mean, I've been dealing with, you know, anxiety for a minute now. You know, it's been sort of baked into me since I was a kid. And, um, you know, it can take over. It can be extremely debilitating. And it's always amazing when you find the way out you know, or at least the light at the end of the tunnel and new mood can be that light. So worry less and feel happier. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash sibling. That's N-O-O-M.com slash sibling. Come on now, sign up for your trial at noom.com slash sibling. That's noom, N-O-O-M.com slash sibling. So how does Buddhism, I would assume that Buddhism within therapy, once you can get, once you can understand sort of the philosophies of mindfulness and and understand the practices of it, it definitely opens up your, the the practice of psychology, meaning you're able to sort of go deeper and, and, and figure out more things about yourself and be more open to your own experience, right? I mean, that they sort of go hand um, in hand that yeah, way. I think almost. I'm not sure about the figuring out more things about yourself. I, I think I'm I'm sort of weak on that end of things. But um, but in terms of a vision for for what the point of it all is, you know, like what's the point? What really is the point of therapy, and what what do people really get out of it, or why do they keep coming back? Um, I, I had this experience when I was first starting out going going to visit Ramdas, who had been a teacher of mine when I was you know twenty, and this was when I was like forty or forty five I went to see him and uh, he was living in Tiburon and he'd already had a stroke and he was sort of making fun of me when I came to see him like, oh, are you a Buddhist shrink now? are you a Buddhist psychiatrist now and and I sort of sheepishly said I was and he said um, uh, the profound thing. Uh, he said, do you see them, meaning my patients, do you see them as already free? And I was like, what's he talking about? Uh, do I see them as already free? But 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 gradually I, I got what he was saying. 
and I, and and that that is it's one of the things that I that has really stayed with me. Like I, that, I think might make me a little bit different from a lot of other more traditional therapists, you know, who don't have the Buddhist uh, background. Like I could say yes to that question, you know. Like I really do see the the, the freedom in the person there already, even if they're having a lot of trouble. And I and I can pitch. Uh, what I'm doing, what we're doing, I can pitch the, uh, I can sense the trajectory of what I'm hoping for to, that they could know that too, you know? I um, listen to Ram Dass all the time. He's like my- yeah, Still you do? Yeah. You I, whenever I'm feeling uh-huh. really like just, whether it be frustrated, annoyed, stressed, like if there's something that I'm, that that is making me feel like I, like why am I ho- again holding or clinging? I'll put on- yeah. I'll put on Ram Dass. I'll just listen to him in my ears. Because, uh-huh. I mean, he was just so profound. I mean, he the, some of the things that he, they it resonates so deeply with me. Well, he um, had a good, he was like a stand-up comic too, you know, yeah, so he could do it in a- So in a, relatable and- So relatable. And and his, and his the concepts of death are the things that are, I think, because that's the thing that I cling to the most is like, don't die yet, don't die yet. Uh-huh. You know, I've got too much to do. I've got too much to do. I've got to yeah. be here for my kids. That's the, that's the, the, the the mantra I'm trying to constantly let go of. I'm with you. That, it, that, that's it's like, the source me, of most anxiety. It's my kids. Yeah. It's like, I can't die. I have to be here for the kids. Yeah. Like I have to, what, what the hell's, what are they going to do? I don't want to, and I'm not, it's not the fear of death itself. It's the fear of not, you know, and, and, and so I think that that finds, every time when I say what's bothering me right now, like, mm-hmm. what is it really? <laughs> the core of it is really that. Well, uh, I need to figure this out before I die. <laughs> I right. need to like, I need to make sure that I get to do this before, or I need to make sure all these ducks are in a row because, and I don't want to think about it like that, you know. And well, fear is the or co- life like that. Fear is the root of so many different things. But yeah. in your in your experience, like specifically the fear of death. I mean, is how how big is that in your patients? Oh, I think that that's. Um, uh, uh, that's under underlying under everything. almost yeah. everything, just mm-hmm. like you're saying. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, some of my patients have actually ha- had their loved ones die. So then, so then their relationship to death, it, it's not just fear of death or it, it's also like, oh my God, this death really exists and I couldn't stop it. You know, I couldn't stop it. And now what am I supposed to do? So sometimes so, to get to the root of, 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 of certain issues, do you ever, do you have to go that deep and, and dig into that? And then they sort of have this epiphany or this idea that, okay, I may be not so afraid to die anymore. And all of a sudden, you know, I don't know, I can get a boner. See, whatever. but that's where Ram Dass comes into me, <laughs> Oliver. <laughs> you can always get the boner. Jesus. But that's where for me, like the Ram Dass thing comes in. When I'm feeling that way and I listen to Ram Dass, it's like a light bulb goes off immediately. I'm like, you know what? This is what, this is the, it just is, isn't it? This is uh, Sadhguru, you know, he always, he says this thing I thought was really interesting too, which is like, you know, if you're stuck inside of the, uh, oh fuck, what is, I'm going to get it wrong. If you're always stuck inside of like the, the, if you're not looking to solve something, then you're only like look ahead of it and solve it. Then you're only stuck in the, in the, uh, what, what did he use? It was like about death, about about the need to be 
Um, Allison, we're not cutting any of this out. Oh, fuck. No, what's the word? I'm going to get that. Really what he's saying is instead of feeling like you need to be held Mm -hmm. or like consoled, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to, you need to think about the solution. And the only solution to death is to live. So basically- Teach right. a man so to fish sort of like this. type of a vibe. Like don't give him, don't give the, teach man to fish and he'll be, it, well, never it, go hungry. The idea is that the second you let go of this concept or the attachment to what it is to lose, you realize that the, we haven't lost really anything, that that's just the natural process of everything and that we are living. So the only solution really in moments like this is to live. Does that make sense? No. Am I making sense or I'm, I'm totally no. butchering You're channeling this. something. Well, let's just, <laughs> I understand what you're... Let's go like, back to what, the... What, what I, what I would say. Let's go back to the bone. You're channeling something. What I would say about like the, the <laughs> fear, I think, I think like with fear of death, it's the fear to focus on. You know, I think death is being used often as an excuse to be afraid. And that, and that people are comfortable in their fear. That that's like the small room that we were talking about before. And what what if in where you're going is saying death is part of life? So so why do we have to fear it? It's a natural thing. Um, but so if the if the wide if the if the big field, you know, if we don't have to be afraid in our in our lives, if we if we don't have to set death up as the big thing that we attach our fear to, then we could just work with fear, and and you know, do we have to be bound by fear? Do we have to be constrained by fear? And what's the opposite of fear? You know, it has something to do with love, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we just, if we, and that's why you're, you, you get afraid of death because it's going to take you away from everybody that you love and are the people you love going to be okay. But anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about injured innocence. Cause I really want to understand this a little bit better. You talk about, um, I wrote this, uh, uh, down that like, what does Buddhism teach you or teach anyone about, about injured innocence? And what is it really? Um, in, injured innocence is when uh, someone who you love uh, accuses you of doing something that in your heart you didn't mean or you didn't do. And so you have the feeling inside of how could they think that of me? How could they accuse me of that? It's, a, it's like a kind of feeling of righteous, indig- righteous indignation. Um, so it's like the innocent part of you is injured. That's the, that's the feeling. So, um, I like this. I like the sound of the phrase injured innocence. And so, uh, I've used it in various ways. Um, there's a feeling going back to the attachment kind of conversation. There's a feeling that a lot of people have had as children of feeling, unattended to or misunderstood or not not uh not seen for who they really are but you know having to fit into the mold of who the parents or whomever want them to be and that's a kind of injured innocence also uh you know when too much intrusion or too much uh, abandonment from the from the family leaves you with a feeling of uh, either emptiness or worthlessness or or um, or that kind of you know the fighting aspect the righteous indignation, but um, uh, in Buddhism, 
the, the big task of, of uh, insight meditation is to try to find the self, you know, with, uh, the self that Buddha said doesn't exist in the, in the way we think that it does. So the, uh, the, the, the task is to, the way we were talking about focusing on the clinging, the, the task of meditation is to feel where you are most yourself, which is usually in the clinging, and then to learn to see through it, you know, let go of it or see how it's really just a construct. So they say that the best time, the best way to find the self that doesn't really exist the way we think it does is in the feeling of injured innocence. Uh, because then you're really feeling like, how could they do that to me? How could they think that about me? So that feeling of me is very strong. And if you make that feeling of me the object of meditation, then you have an opportunity to uh, uh, part the waters a little bit, you know, not to be so stuck in yourself. Higher dose. I, I've talked about this before. I couldn't be happier to have Higher Dose as a sponsor. Um, this is something that I'm a big believer in. We need to sweat. So here's what Higher Dose is. It's a basically a one-of-a-kind at-home spa experience. Higher Dose's line of infrared devices, they harness the most healing technologies available from infrared's healing heat to PMF's grounding technology. They've got red light rejuvenating rays. Their best-selling portable infrared sauna blanket is my absolute favorite. I, I do it as often as I can. It's the, well, first of all, it's the easiest thing to be able to do. You just turn it on, it heats up really fast, and then you lay down inside the blanket, you turn up the heat, and you sweat it out. And when you sweat, because it's infrared, you're really sweating from the inside out. It's a real detox sweat. They also have these mats, these PEMF mats that are awesome. Um, they've got 20 pounds of healing crystals in them, like amethyst and tourmaline, uh, that help you relax. And it just recharges your cell. You lay on the blanket. It's, you know, and just take take 10, man. Take 10 and lay on lay on some crystals. Why not? Then there's the red light face mask, stimulates collagen, activates your glowing skin, reduces fine lines, regenerates cells. It's cordless and it comes with a secure strap so you can kind of multitask. So get your own sauna blanket, mat, and red light mask today at higherdose.com. You can use promo code sibling at checkout to save 15% off. That's higherdose.com, promo code sibling, or just go to higherdose.com slash sibling to save 15% off. Sakara, everyone knows how much we love Sakara. Sakara is a wellness company that's anchored in foods as medicine. It's on a mission to nourish your body through the power of plants. It's all plant-based ingredients. Their nutritionally designed, chef-crafted breakfast, lunch, and dinners are made with yummy plant-based ingredients. And they're amazing. They taste they taste incredible. The quality of the food is incredible. And now we're taking care of ourselves. Now we're eating well and we're taking care of ourselves. That's what, that's what we want. We're putting ourselves in the driver's seat of our own health. And it's all delivered right to your door. They also have this, um, it's the best-selling metabolism super powder, which is really incredible. 
but they've got these teas. Um, they've got their their fun, newest functional snack, super seed and nut blends. Sakara has received rave reviews from Vogue, Goop, The New York Times, and more. And I'm going to give it my rave review because I absolutely love Sakara. So right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash sibling or enter code sibling at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash Sibling to get 20% off your first order, sakara.com slash sibling. How, how, how does one learn to relate differently to the things that happen to us? Like, how do we... Uh, practice. Right. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think that's that's where therapy can be good and that's where meditation can be useful is that's what you're doing all the time in those environments is you're you're practicing relating differently to the stuff i i had a therapist say to me my therapist say to me that part of the fear of actually just letting things happen in a circumstance like that is the fear that when i do let go that i won't want to be um, that maybe there will be the realization that the relationship really isn't right. Yeah, I was going to say something similar, but but I, I think there's a big fear. Like when the rupture happens, when you find you're hating the person that you're with or they've misunderstood you or accused you of something, when the rupture happens and, and oftentimes... Um, uh, people can't stand, they can't stand the way they're feeling and one one or the other will like walk out and leave. And that, that's like the worst thing to do when you're fighting and, you know, unless you're prone to violence and it's a way of stopping yourself from hurting the other person physically. But um, to, to trust that these ruptures happen, that it's the nature of an intimate relationship and that the love, it's like the already free thing, that the love is still there underlying even the fight or the disagreement or the misunderstanding, that the love is still there and that it will reassert itself, you know? Um, there's a kind of trust or faith there that... Uh, I, I, I have a neg- negative question, but like, <laughs> how, do you know when, how do you know when to quit? How do you know when... When like, to quit what? A when relationship. Quit the relationship or? Yeah, it's like, oh, oh fuck, you it's know. Over. You definitely know. Yeah, it's just done. It, you definitely it's just know. done. I mean, do? I mean, the right, the right. So many people are together who probably shouldn't be. You know what I mean? Who Not are necessarily. They probably long. should be. They probably should be. Well, I was before my wife. I was in a relationship <laughs> for three years with a Buddhist, Nichiren Daishonin Buddhism. It was different. Yes, but so I was chanting. No, it's not different. I yeah. do that. Well, That's it was a different sect of Buddhism, I guess. But it, it, it's, a, it's all one Buddhism. Yeah. yeah. Go no, ahead. No, so no, you were for three yourself. years, and, uh, and you were yeah, and, <laughs> and you and you were you were loyal. I was in it way too long, meaning uh-huh. I was just scared because I was just a wimp, and I was like, uh-huh. oh god. And then finally, she calls and she's like, "What are we doing?" I'm like, "Yeah, what are we doing?" Even though I knew it was over long before it was, I was just too scared to actually say, "Let's not be together anymore." Yeah, but that's what he's. That's what you know. That's what we're talking about. It's that sometimes, I mean, you you probably still have to learn how to break up with people. Well, that's your yeah, but that's like what were you scared of? Hurting her, I guess. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and just that that that's what really what it was. I I didn't want to be the guy. 
So I, I, I yeah. made her break up with me basically. And then we slept yeah. together for like five months after that. <laughs> <laughs> and How was, was that? The, oh, the best sex we've ever had, <laughs> you know? But what is that by the way? I mean, cause that's, yeah. rela- that's, that's relatable. Freedom. It's like you, you are mm-hmm. now separate and all of a sudden sex just gets off the charts good. What mm-hmm. is that? Well, you weren't worrying about hurting her anymore. I guess, right? I, I, I guess. I was just free. Yeah. Because that happens Freedom all the time. It's a relatable, ex- no expectation. It's a relatable thing, though. You the know? pressure was off. There's no pressure to like, there's no performative pressure, except maybe, you know, well, I don't, her I, personal I, thing. I but. don't have that. <laughs> do you do couples? <laughs> I try not to because I always take sides. But, uh, but some, sometimes, sometimes people insist and then I do my best with them. Do you uh, really take sides? Is that, is that so how it works? Of, co- of course. That's so funny. I have a question about anger. Is it is is anger something if it's harbored in you if it's something that you have that's like familial can it be released as an energy, or does it always stay there? Is there always that ability to feel or tap into that kind of intense anger or rage? Um, from my experience, which is all I can all I can go on there. Um, I don't think it can go away. I think I think we all have that uh, quality, that that depth, that intensity of anger that you that you touched on. You, you know, I I think, and I think in meditation in particular, or in intimate relationships, that's another way. Like you, you inevitably have to face the horror of yourself. You, you know, like you just see everything, um, and it's not all pretty. Um, but I, but I do think the, the, the promise of Buddhism, and I think it's sort of supported by um, a psychodynamic therapy, is that the, um, those energies, like the anger might not go away, but the energy can be transformed so that it becomes like all that intensity that you felt as, as rage or whatever. It, it's actually your power. Uh, um, it's your it's your power, and you and you um, might need to tap it uh, at various times, either in your work or in your or with your family, or you know, uh, yeah. So that it becomes it becomes more available because you. I think you get less frightened of even of the of the horror of yourself. You, you know, uh, more willing to more willing to admit stuff, more willing to be. Uh, kind of open to everything, and therefore it bec- that 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 stuff that you had been afraid of becomes available for use. That's that's mm-hmm. what I hope for. Yeah, my my instinct when she asked a question, which I love that question because I, I I'm with you. My inst- I know nothing, but my instinct was like, no, absolutely not. It doesn't just you go, can't away. go away. Yeah, you can't like release the energy. You can right you can transform. transform it, right. <clears throat> there's there, there's some relationship between aggression. In between anger, aggression, and compassion, mm-hmm. that I, that I'm reaching for in my book, mm. uh, uh, I had when I first put the book together. I structured the four parts of the patients. I structured it around the you know the path of meditation. So the first part was clinging, and the second part was mindfulness, and the third part was insight, and then the fourth part was going to be compassion. Um, 
but then, then the, and I had them, you know, associated with the four seasons that the therapy took place in, et cetera. But then the editor read through them and she was like, Mark, that whole fourth part where you're saying it's about compassion, every one of those cases is about anger. <laughs> and, uh, uh, because I think it was like working with anger is what, re- is what allowed compassion. You know, when, when someone gets comfortable enough, when they accept their anger, uh, even anger at at the other person, then that that's what allows them to be compassionate ultimately to mm. themselves and to others. Right. But so I, uh, but she was right. I looked at them all, and they were all about anger. So I changed the order of the book. So now it's clinging, mindfulness, insight, and then aggression. And then I made a last chapter that's about uh, you know about kindness, basically, or about compassion. How many subjects? That's so interesting because I. Oh. How many subjects in, in, the, in the book? Yeah, uh, I tried to pick one a week for a year, okay. so I skipped a few weeks. But there's there's probably forty or forty five, and some people recur. Yeah, there's a few people who recur, but mostly they're all they're all different people, and and I had to give pseudonyms to them. And, yeah. And then show everybody what I wrote and, and oh my God. Uh, make sure it was okay. Yeah, it was a whole very interesting <laughs> did, process. Did you was get, there anyone yeah, who was like, yeah, fuck yeah, no? Yeah. <laughs> only only one person said no. And it, and it was a person who came to see me only once for a consultation and got there half an hour late. Uh, and so I just had a half hour with them, mm-hmm. but I thought the session was really good and I wrote it down, but they, they said, you know, I don't really know you and I would rather not be in your book, right. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but everybody else, everybody else said yes. And, and no one really tinkered with the material. Uh, and the only, the only back and forth I had with people was, it was about the pseudonyms that I chose. They're for like, them. I don't want to be named uh, Doug. That's really what it was like. But but a couple of times, once I chose somebody without knowing, I picked their middle name that they hated uh, to uh, oh, to be funny. their that's, to be their name. So great. I had to change that and a couple of other things. Where are you where do you stand on sort of happenstance, circum, you know, and just the the mystical and connection and fate, I'm, I'm, destiny, I'm a supporter. and all that. You know, I mean, yeah. do you believe that? we energetically are connected and there is no such thing as a coincidence? Um, I think there is such a thing as a coincidence uh, and that a, a lot of stuff is random. Uh, but I also think that um, cert- when certain things line up and it doesn't feel like an accident, you, you know, so, so I, I, I think there's some other, there's something else operating that, that we don't understand, but that, that uh, affects us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it's, so, it's, I'm with you on that one. It's interesting because we talk to a lot of different doctors and, and, and everyone has a very different feeling about that. And that's a question I always, I mean, I always love asking mm-hmm. people that have studied Western medicine. And I find that you know, I, I was at this event and I spoke to a one of the top neuroscientists. He's at UCLA. And uh, I asked him, I said, you know, do you believe that there's something else? Or do you believe that when we die, it's over? Do you, like, is this it, you know? And he said, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, absolutely not. There's no way. We die, we die. He's like, but in his last 10, five to 10 years, my view on that has completely changed. He says- Oh, that's great. Yeah, which I thought was really interesting, just the research, how much we don't know. I did a, I did a conversation a couple of years ago at the Rubin Museum with a 
a psychic medium named uh, Laurelyn Jackson, <clears throat> who channels, you know, people from the other side. Fun. Who, um, who, who I love. I she has helped helped me and helped other patients that I've worked with enormously. So I did a public conversation with her where uh, I asked her questions about how it started to happen for her and what you know what her take on reality was. And I got a lot of feedback. Oh, how brave, you know, like a Western trained, like you're willing to talk about this kind of thing. But it was it was one of the it was one of my favorite uh, I mean, conversations I ever had. You know, I kind of look at people who can co- connect. I just maybe 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 because I feel that way, but that can connect to something that's outside of this. And then you think about the science of it, and you're like, if we're on three dimensions and there's multiple multiple dimensions, how? How in- in- insanely self-centered are we to think that we are all that exists, mm-hmm. right? That's how I... In, ter- I mean. in terms of the synchronicity, what um, one of the sessions that I talk about in the book, a, a, a patient was was with me and was telling me a dream. And some somehow I had the uh, inclination to... I asked him if he had ever thrown the I Ching. And uh, and he didn't know what it was, so I took it off my shelf and I showed him how to do it. And we we threw the I Ching to help interpret his dream, and the um, and the read the I Ching, the reading from the I Ching was so perfectly attuned. It was so right on to what the dream was about that uh, that you know it was just completely startling. So mm-hmm. was that random? You know, like yeah. What, yeah, what is that? It's fun. It's fun to play with that. Yeah. yeah. What is that connectivity and like what is energy and how does it really connect? And I mean, I don't know. I I I could talk about yeah. this forever. I think the one thing that you know we talk a lot about kindness. What would what what is your recommendation for people who want to to bring more mindfulness and kindness into their life? Well, the the, the first thing is um, I don't think meditation is for everyone. Um, I don't think it's right for everyone. I don't, you know, so to, to feel that you have to uh, practice mindfulness or have to practice meditation and that you're somehow deficient if you're not doing it, I think that's totally wrong. Um, so for people who are drawn to it, who like it, great. Uh, but there are, there are many ways of introducing that kind of sensibility into one's life. So uh, such as, um, uh, opening the door and going outside and uh, uh, standing and listening to the sounds of the city or the sounds of nature uh, or taking a walk with no agenda for the walk just to to um, change the physical and mental and emotional uh, 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 boundaries that that you're usually subjecting yourself to. So just simply by changing the channel, uh, you know, on your mind, you're introducing a meditative sensibility. That's really all you're doing when you sit down to meditate is you're you're taking yourself away from your phone, you're taking yourself away from your family, and in a certain way, you're taking yourself away from the preoccupations of your mind. So, uh, even something as simple as watching television, which I know everyone is like, you know, criticizes people for wasting their time uh, watching television. But I think that 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 culture, you know, music and film and uh, sports and uh, you know, 
all this, all the stuff that generally is talked about as distractions. I think that those are in certain ways functioning like meditations because they pull us away from our usual preoccupation. So mm-hmm. there's something liberating, um, something opening and freeing in that. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that that's, that's one whole way of answering the question. Mm-hmm. You know, you know and, where, where mm-hmm. I exist I haven't been diving in a, in a minute, but I used to dive yeah, diving, a lot. Diving, diving. Oh my God. I mean, it, it doesn't get more meditative because first of all, you're diving. hearing your breath and, and you are so, you are so right in that moment. Yeah. You know, it is so yeah. meditative. It's crazy. No, it's so alive. You're, yeah. But I think, or sailing, I mean, why do people, you know, gravitate to that, mm-hmm. to the, to the, their boats if they can afford them mm-hmm. or playing, but playing golf, playing tennis, going swimming, all that stuff is functioning. Mm-hmm. In a, I love, a sa- I love sailing. That's like one of my favorite mm-hmm. things. Sailing. Yeah, sailing. sailing. Diving, on the other hand, I, it makes brings up every fear I have. <laughs> and then when I had to do it for a movie, I remember getting to the seafloor and like sitting down and I was staring at this wall of fish. And I, it was so beautiful. And I, you know, and I just sobbed. I just In sat your there. Mask? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just literally sobbed. And I had the best dive ever. I, I ended up diving around. I was with a bunch of people and I was like, oh my God. But that was like, you know, get me in like murky Mm -hmm. Catalina water and forget it. I'm like a cartoon trying to jump out of the water. Um, Um, All right. Well, I'm I'm, going to leave you with one last question, but don't overthink this. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, I also want to make sure How have I been doing up to now? Huh? All right. You ready? Go ahead. Why? So, <laughs> you want to hear how I ended my book? Yeah. Yes. Oh, this is going to oh, be good. There's an answer. Okay. <laughs> it's sort of along the same lines. So, uh, I thought maybe this is a little cheesy. I don't know. Uh, but on the on the last page on the last page of the book, after all the text is done, um, I have one one little haiku because mm-hmm. I use these uh, Zen poems throughout the book. Oh, cool. So the the last one says. Only one koan matters. A koan is like the riddle that the Zen, you know, people use in meditation to sort of confuse your rational mind, you know. And so only one koan matters. You. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's a great. <laughs> that's a good answer to why. It sort of goes with the why. <laughs> that's perfect. Like, oh, <laughs> this was the best. That's perfect. Wow. Well, we want you on, you know, every yeah, just write, season. Just write just a book every year. Books. I'll come whenever you Yeah, want. just write books. But I don't know about writing more books. We, <laughs> we, love, we love talking to you, and you're just so insightful and wonderful and kind. And you, you, make, you made my day better. You make me feel thanks. Yeah, yeah this was great. Well, I had the best time last time, and and I had the best time this time. <laughs> Good. So, Good. so Good. I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful to both of you. It's you know completely enjoyable. For oh, me. thanks. We're grateful for you. Sibling Revelry is executive produced by Kate Hudson and Oliver Hudson. Producer is Allison Bresnik. Editor is Josh Windish. Music by Mark Hudson, aka Uncle Mark. If you want to show us some love, rate the show. And leave us a review. This show is powered by Simplecast. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. 
Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.